The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 14 through 29. Uh, We're continuing through our series. We're just working verse by verse through the book of Mark. Uh, sermon series is called Servant King, and uh, man, I've been looking forward to this set of scriptures. It's going to be a good one. So what's going to happen here, it's going to be really imperative, and it's, all, it's always true to some degree, but it's really important today that you, you listen closely as we read this set of verses, because we're going to encounter something here It's going to be pretty hard for us to relate to in 2020 America. We're going to read about something we've likely never seen or maybe even ever heard of. Okay, so we're going to read this together and then work through it. So we're in Mark 6, starting in verse 14. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. When it says for his name, they're talking about Jesus. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Praise God for his word. So what is it that we read here we've likely never seen or heard of in our modern time? What did we see? I'm going to submit to you that what we saw here, that's going to be hard for us to relate to, is a corrupt politician putting their foot in their mouth and doing something shady to save face. We're going to have to stretch with our imaginations to even conceptualize that, right? Now, some of you laughed, which is what I was hoping for, but uh, some of you might be thinking, isn't this, isn't this guy supposed to be a man of God? I, I can't believe he's using sarcasm. Well, let me give you a quick window into history here, and it might put your mind at ease. The the region of Palestine in this time was separated into four sections 
by the Romans. And then they installed basically four puppet leaders uh, over them. And Herod Antipas, which is the Herod that you most commonly hear of, is re- you know, referred to Herod in the Gospels, uh, he was this puppet leader over Galilee. Okay, and that's kind of the region Jesus most uh, did ministry in, and so we, we see his name come up quite often. So what that means is, uh, Herod was not actually a king. And many scholars uh, think that Mark referring to him as King Herod here was actually a sarcastic jab at his sense of self-aggrandizement. Uh, so the Bible has jokes, okay? So uh, I, I'm going to put myself in good company, all right? So I want to make sure before I start kind of pulling this apart and, and looking for application, we, we really understand what's happening here, okay? So verses 14 through 16, they're outlining, okay, a cultural discussion about who Jesus was, okay? Jesus had created buzz, and there was a lot of people asking the question, who is this guy, okay? Uh, and, and what it shows us is that there's different options. People think he's Elijah. People think, you know, this, that, and the other. Uh, but, but Herod thought, he was John the Baptist risen from the dead. That's who, that's who Herod thought Jesus was. Then verses 17 through 29, they're basically a flashback giving you the backstory of why John the Baptist weighed so heavy on Herod's conscience. Okay, that's, that's what we're reading here in these verses. Herod's brother, Philip, he ruled over another part of Palestine and his wife, Herodias, left him to marry Herod. Okay? And, and what did John the Baptist do about it? Well, he called Herod out for that sin. And Herodias hated him for it. So basically, what Herodias ended up doing is she pimped her daughter out to dance seductively in front of Herod and his guests at his self-thrown birthday party to get them all riled up, hoping that Herod would make some foolish, big-shot offer in the heat of the moment so she could get what she wanted, which was for John to be killed, right? You heard the phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned? You're seeing that play out here. Herodias uh, was not playing around. And, and it even says there was a strategic day. There was strategy behind this. This was planned out. So in 15 verses that we just read, we get a, a pretty stark look and a pretty lengthy list of Herod's sinful character flaws. Okay, what do we see? Well, first of all, we see that he's an adulterer. That was what John directly called him out for. Uh, he took his brother's wife, okay? John told him, that's a no-go, bro. Okay, we see that he's sexually immoral in and above and on top of that. Well, how do we see that? Well, <clears throat> maybe it's an inference. You, you can, you know, if you want to talk about it later, we can debate it, but if a guy's sitting there and he's stoked about his wife's daughter dancing, make no mistake, that it pleased Herod, this was, the dancing was erotic, and that's what got Herod in the mood to start offering half the kingdom. Okay, So the guy's sexually immoral, he's prideful, we see that he offers half of his, up to half, this girl comes out and does a booty shaking dance, okay, and he offers half of his kingdom. As a reward, okay? But here's the problem. Here's how we see that pointing to Herod's pride. Herod didn't really have a kingdom. Herod was a puppet for the Romans. Herod didn't really have anything to give. But he's just talking big in front of his buddies. He's prideful. And all of this happened at the birthday party he threw for himself. Okay? So, (laughs) you know, whatever. Uh, We see that he's impulsive, right? So this 
this dance happens and, and he, he's, he gets, gets riled up and this guy start, he starts saying stuff that just it doesn't even make any sense. And he, and he jumps to that real fast and, and binds himself up with his impulsiveness. Uh, we see that he's easily manipulated. To some degree, he's got to be simple-minded. He's a puppet for the Romans, but also this, this whole plan played out and worked exactly like Herodias thought it would. Uh, girl comes out and dances. She, she knows Herod wants to feel like a big shot at his birthday. He, he plays right into this thing. And we see that he wasn't happy about it. It says he was, once, he, once it dawned on him what was happening, it says he was very sorry. But he felt backed into a corner because he'd shot his mouth off in front of all these important guests. And so now he couldn't look like a fool, so he thought, and ended up carrying out an execution on a man that he knew was holy. Now, it would be easy for us to think that the point of this passage is, is to point out, or, or how we could apply this passage today, is to point out how corrupt those in power can be. And, and to draw the application from this that we should call out this evil, just like John the Baptist, even if it means we suffer grim consequences. It'd be very easy for us to read the account of this weak-minded, prideful, sexually immoral deviant and his vengeful, scheming wife and feel very self-righteous in comparison after. You know, after all, most of us in here have never ordered an innocent man to be beheaded because someone shook their nether regions at us, right? So we could read this account and feel <clears throat> very good about ourselves in comparison to old foolish Herod, right? Uh, we could even go so far, it wouldn't be a far leap, I'm sure it's probably been done. We could transpose this story onto our current political landscape and depending on which wing of the political bird we tend to ride on, we could ascribe these evil characteristics to the party or the politicians that we don't like. Ooh, nervous shifting in seats. Dang it, he got us. I lined you up for it. I kind of pulled a Herodias deal on you. I set this up. But my question to you today, you could, it would not surprise me at all to hear someone else on October 4th, 2020 tackle these scriptures, and that be the sermon they preached. And everyone go, yup. Okay, but, but let us consider how the scripture actually teaches that we should apply it. Okay, James chapter 1, starting in verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does." The Word of God is meant to be a mirror. Not a mirror that you run around with facing outward. Right? What's a mirror for? So you can check yourself out. Verse 26, just a little cherry on that Sunday. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Woo! Man, 
Hey, brother, it's baby, you know, child dedication Sunday. We're supposed to have a fluffy sermon. It's supposed to, come on, man. We got, we got guests and visitors today. Can't you chill out a little bit? I'm bound to the text. I'm sorry. You're going to get where we're at. Amen. We're not done. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to, what are we talking about? The word of God. Why are we reading these verses? Because we're talking about how does the scripture teach we're supposed to apply the word? Are we supposed to read about Herod and Herodias and, 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 and take that and transpose it upon people we disagree with and don't like and say, man, whew, I wish so-and-so would hear this verse. Is that what we're supposed to do? No, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. What does it do? It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You see, friends, here is really, if, if the word of God is a mirror and it's a sword, not meant to cut others but to turn on ourselves, Here's, here's the reality. Who among us, who among us has not lusted for someone who we weren't married to? Because Jesus said that's adultery of the heart. Who among us has not been blinded by pride and selfishness in all their devious and deceptive forms? Who among us has never made emotionally driven and impulsive decisions that have led to pain for others? Who among us has never done something foolish to try not looking foolish in the eyes of others. If we, in humility, turn the mirror of God's perfect word on ourselves, we all then see the distorted and imperfect image staring back at us. If we stop swinging the sword of the word at others with self-righteous fervor and we turn it on ourselves, we will be laid open to reveal the evil thoughts and intentions of our own hearts. But hold on, hold on, preacher. I think you're forgetting something. Just, you know, aren't you forgetting how important... Modern science says it is that, that we have a, a positive self-esteem and a positive self-image because you are not helping my self-esteem and self-image right now. I'm not sure you've read any of the, the latest clinical research. Well, I have, and, and, but you may even expect me in response to that to, to just dismiss that idea because you, what might be happening thus far is what you've heard is it seems to confirm a false narrative that says Christianity is nothing more than a guilt trip meant to control people. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've thought that. Maybe you believe that even today. We, we can even double down on that idea by looking at the way Herod and Herodias lived in disobedience to God's word. And ancient sources say they ended up banished after being accused of treason and ultimately committing suicide. That was their end. So what you could come to is, and what you could think uh, is being said here, the summary of this is, well, be good. And don't be bad or else God's going to get you. Be good and, and call out all the evil you see in others, which is really, a, it's a tactic to convince yourself that you're good oftentimes. Let's be honest about that. Be good. Call out all the evil you see in others. Be like John. Don't be like Herod and Herodias. Is that the message here? No, it's not. Why? Because 
we haven't yet examined carefully this couple, Herod and Herodias, which them getting together with names that close together is weird anyways. I'm just going to say that out loud so you know I think it. You didn't see, you didn't see a red flag there? Come on, guys. Sal and Sally. That, the message is not be good or God's going to get you. The message is not be good and, and make sure you call out all the evil you see in the world. Why? We need to examine this couple's greatest blunder, even more devastating than being sexually immoral and prideful, impulsive, simple-minded, and adulterer, or being a vengeful, bloodthirsty schemer. Like, ooh, those are pretty bad. What was worse than that? I didn't catch it. We haven't called out the biggest mistake of all, the mistake of all mistakes, the one that had they avoided it could have changed the whole course of their lives. And what is that mistake? Let me read you verse 16 once again. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. What was that big mistake? The biggest, the mistake of all mistakes. They refused to see Jesus for who he really was. That was the nail in the coffin. And come on now, isn't that, isn't that true? Jesus said, what did he say? He came for the sick, not the healthy. Jesus granted repentance to liars and adulterers and schemers all the time. And to those who had lived in the blindness of their pride. Jesus came preaching a message of repentance available to those who would humble themselves and realize it was for them. But they didn't see Jesus for who he was. Herod, overcome by his guilty conscience, fixated upon Jesus must be John the Baptist risen, which meant he dismissed Christ for who he really was and dismissed his message. They didn't have to turn to suicide and all their shame and regret. They didn't need to depend on their own works or the opinions of others to determine their self-worth. They didn't have to. They had Jesus right in front of them. He was healing with miracles and feeding with miracles. And they had Jesus himself preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, but they missed it. And friends, we find ourselves in the same spot today with, though, the added benefit and, and thus accountability of Christ's death and resurrection attested to by faithful eyewitnesses. They had Jesus' miracles and Jesus' teaching right there in front of them and somehow they missed him. We have all that plus the recorded death of Christ and his resurrection. Many today still argue about whether Jesus was a teacher or a prophet or a good man from which we can gain some moral insights. But here's the truth. He did not leave us with those options about who he is. Our cultural discussion doesn't surround around whether Jesus is Elijah or Jesus is John the Baptist, but we have other names. We have other options for who he is. But he didn't leave us with those options because he said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door through which the sheep must enter, and I am the good shepherd who will lead them through that door. Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches, and apart from me, you can do nothing. That means we don't get to leave him in the bucket of 
good moral teacher or inspirational quote sayer. He either is the way, the truth, and the life, or something far more evil than anything else we've encountered here today. Because you can't make those claims and be both, right? You either are or you aren't. And that puts us in a position. What are we going to do about Jesus? It's interesting. I saw a couple guys recently uh, debating and talking through, discussing the difference between Christianity and Judaism, and they might have sprinkled in some other world religions there. And these guys, their, their IQ is far above mine, and so they're, they're talking about all these you know, secondary and tertiary issues and, and things, these distinctions that they see, and they talked around this issue for 30 or 45 minutes. And I just, you know, I'm just a simple guy. I remember sitting there thinking the whole time, guys, you've got all this stuff about, you know, national identity versus personal identity and all these, these differences and distinctions you, you see and, and you're calling out. But the thing you're missing, man, there's just, there's just one big difference between Christianity and the rest of the world religions. His name is Jesus. <laughs> the, that's it. It's pretty simple. We believe that a humble Galilean peasant rose up and did miracles and taught that the kingdom was coming and taught that he was the, the Messiah everyone was waiting for and then died in our place for our sins and rose from the grave and now sits at the right hand of the Father as an advocate for us. That's what we believe and that's a bit of a distinctive from all the rest of the world religions. All the rest of the world religions believe there's a God or a deity or something that if you you know, look inside hard enough or you, you uh, are, are morally superior on the exterior that you can, you can get to the point where this God will accept you. We, we believe that Jesus came and lived the perfect life we couldn't and then died in our place for our sins, that grace is the way we come to God, that it's unearned favor, that it's the mercy of God by which any of us will approach him. That's a pretty big distinctive. You're not going to find that in any other religious philosophical frameworks. That's the difference. We, today, we can let the word of God be the mirror it's supposed to be, showing us our flaws. We can let the word of God lay us open as a sword to reveal the sin that hides in our hearts. But if, as we do that, the point of that is not to lead us into despondency or despair. It's to lead us to this, a desperate realization that our own righteousness is as filthy rags. That's what this mirror and this sword is meant to do. It is only then, when we come to that desperate place of realization, that we can truly repent. And in so doing, we can reach and receive our identity as sons and daughters of God. And then, as sons and daughters of God, know that we are redeemed and that we are of such immeasurable value that Jesus Christ, the perfect and sinless Lamb of God, would let his precious blood be shed to save us. God wants you to see yourself as worthy and infinitely precious. Not because you made yourself valuable, but because he has God wants you to see yourself as strong and courageous, able to stand firm and make war against the forces of darkness. Not because you've made yourself strong, but because he's filled you with his strength. God wants you to know that you are lovely, but you're lovely because he loves you. It's his love and his affection. It's his great work upon us. It's what makes us lovely. Thankfully, 
while we were yet sinners, he died for us. When our identity is secure and we understand who we are in Christ, it frees us from the need to prop up our sense of self-worth by slandering others. You're free from that. You know who you are in Christ. You don't, you don't need the, the little shock to the self-esteem that comes by viewing others as lower than you. And it is from this posture of humility and trust in our eternal king that we can relate properly to political leaders. Now, here is how the scriptures teach us to do that. What am I talking about? How to relate properly to political leaders. I've taught us how we can do that only through the lens of the gospel. And it's it's the only way we're going to relate properly to anybody. Because whether we're screaming about the sins of political leaders or our neighbor or the boss or the other guy at work that's a slouch or whoever it is, much of what that comes out of is a need to bolster our own sense of self-worth. But friends, if the God of the universe has deemed you worthy of the blood of Christ to be shed for you, what help do you need for your self-worth? The God of the universe has already declared you're worth more than anyone could have ever possibly understood could be paid. This is how the scriptures teach us to relate to political leaders. 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. That is how we relate properly to political leaders. Now, some of you, possibly, could could accuse me of being spineless at this point because some of you could still be struggling seeing yourself as John the Baptist in the story. And so your summary of reading that is that, well, faithful Christians, then they should be calling out the sins of political leaders. Well, if if you're still there, I'm... I'm going to try not to be sassy, but it may come through, okay? So just, I need grace too. I want to point out to you one critical difference between John the Baptist here and all the loudmouth keyboard warriors out there who think they're doing God's work with their slander. Okay, there's a a key difference. Let me read to you verse 20 of Mark 6 once more. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe, And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Okay, what's the big difference? John knew Herod, and Herod knew John. And John told him about himself face to face. Because God lifted John up to a place of prominence where he had the ear of Herod. Okay? If God puts you in a position where political leaders are actually listening to your input, then by all means, please speak truth in love, no matter what the consequences may be. Absolutely. But shooting our mouths off and parroting our favorite news network while we're screaming into our social media echo chambers is not holy or helpful. 
for most of us. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6, those are the marching orders that our heavenly king gave us for how to relate to earthly leaders. That's 1 Timothy 1 through 6 again, if you're taking notes. You might want to jot that one down. It's not easy, friends. But those are the marching orders, and and I I think it's important that I don't just say that to you, but I I want us to to take a minute to actually do that together. And so uh, I'm going to invite Brother Andrew Higginbotham to come up. Uh, I don't know where he is, but he'll make his way up here. Give him a hand while he's walking, wherever he's coming from. So... So here's what we're going to do. I'm hoping this doesn't screech when I hand it to you. There we go. All right. Bingo. So, Brother Andrew uh, is a key leader here at Love City Church, and uh, I talked to him beforehand, so he's okay with this characterization. Uh, in <laughs> he, he would stand uh, a couple clicks to the left of a moderate political position, okay? And so what Brother Andrew's going to do today is he's going to pray for President Trump and for all Republican leadership in our country. I, on the other hand, stand a couple clicks to the right of a moderate political position, and I'm going to be praying for Joe Biden and for all of the Democratic leadership in our country, okay? So we're going to pray together. I'm asking you, regardless of how much fervor you've swung your self-righteous sword with thus far, that you'll humble yourself and join us in faith and in prayer for the leaders of our country, okay? Sir? Dear Father, we thank you this day that we can come together in a place where we can worship you freely and openly. We know that that is not accorded to all of our brothers and sisters around the world, that they have a political climate that allows them to proclaim your name openly and to sing your praises publicly. We thank you for that, dear Jesus. We pray, Lord, for the leadership of our country, for the president for the congressional leaders. We, we pray especially today for President Trump's health and his safety and vitality. We know that this pandemic that we're all uh, suffering from in one way or the other uh, is a dangerous one, is a challenging one, is one that is not something to be considered lightly or to be something to mocked. Um, and we ask you, Lord, that you would heal him as according to your power, as according to your word, by the, by the medicines that you in your providence have given to us in our society, by the medical knowledge that we have, that you would heal him and restore him to health, that he may lead us rightly. And we pray, Lord, for the Republican leadership in our Congress and in our states and in our local jurisdictions, that they would also rule wisely. They would guide us in your ways and according to your truth, that they would guard justice and safety for all of their citizens. And in all these things we pray. Amen. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. If you join me in prayer. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. First of all, we just thank you for the privilege of prayer. We know, Lord, that it's not a right we've earned ourselves, but it's because Jesus paid the price we never could have, that we can approach you now as sons and daughters and that we can utter prayers towards heaven and know they reach your sovereign ears. And so we're thankful that right now, just because we decided to, we can stop and pray and know that you hear us. There's great comfort in that for us, God. And Lord, I want to specifically today lift up to you all of the the leadership in our country, Uh, Lord, both sides of the aisle, but in particular today, I want to pray for democratic leadership, God. I ask that you would just... uh, 
like a great awakening, Lord, you would move through their ranks. And, and in asking you that, I'm not assuming where they stand with you because I can't see their hearts. But God, I know all of us, wherever we stand, there's more, there's more we can come closer. There's a distance between us and you. And Lord, I'm asking you to continue to close that distance. Lord, help them to think your thoughts and to, to lead with your convictions. May your word, Lord God, be a mirror and a sword for each of them. Uh, and I'm not saying that for, in judgment. I'm saying that out of great love for them because, Lord, I know, I trust that when each of us, any human, as we come closer to you, our joy increases, our peace increases. We know how to make decisions, not just out of selfish motives, but for your glory and for the good of people broadly. Lord, I pray specifically for Joe Biden as he is on the campaign trail. And, and Lord, all that's happening, God, I ask that you would bless him and keep him. I ask you to draw him ever closer to yourself each day. Wherever he stands before you, God, I ask you to draw him closer to you. I ask that your presence would be tangibly perceptive in his life and in the life of the advisors around him. And God, for all of democratic leadership, wherever they stand, Lord, I ask that you would be with, just be with them, God, because if you're with them, uh, Lord, they will, they will have peace and they will, and they will begin to see the beauty of what it means to walk in love. May all of the leaders of our country May they get a grasp of what it means that love is defined by your cross and what that calls us to do in like. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Appreciate you joining us in those prayers. Herod's great mistake was not seeing Jesus for who he really was and missing the beauty of his gospel. If we make the same mistake, we will have the same outcome. We will feel hopeless in regards to our own sin and the sin in this world. And we will look for saviors somewhere else. For many, those false saviors come in the form of politicians or a sense of self-righteousness from being on the correct side. Which, of course then only makes it natural to demonize the other. You understand what I'm... Let me just drill down on that. You know, if, if, if you understand the gospel and you understand that, that for those who come to know the beauty of, of what Christ has done, that our identity is then found in him, the very term identity politics should make your head tilt like a dog hearing a high-pitched whistle. Okay? That's, <laughs> that's not who we are. That's not who you are. And your sense of self-righteousness should not be derived from who you consider yourself affiliated with politically. However, if we truly see Jesus as our Savior King, we can participate in politics as principled citizens without placing our hope there. May we walk these things out faithfully for God's glory and for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done today. Thank you for your word, which is a mirror that shows us where we stand, <laughs> that shows us, it reflects back to us a distorted and imperfect image, bringing us to a desperate place of realization that we need you. Thank you that your word is a sword meant to be turned on ourselves, separating bone from marrow and, and, and going in and discerning those thoughts and those intentions that hide in our hearts. God, please, please rescue us. Help us today. 
by the truth of your word and by the power of your spirit from the delusion that we are pure as the driven snow down to our core. Lord, may we embrace our imperfection because we don't, it doesn't have to leave us hopeless. We can, we can acknowledge that we are broken. We can acknowledge that we need you. It doesn't have to be this, this hammer blow to our sense of self-worth because at the very same time we're acknowledging how broken we are, we also, God, because of your gospel, can acknowledge how loved we are, how precious we are, how much value we have because you've ascribed it to us. Thank you for the gospel allowing us to live in this way. And not only for what that does internally and how we see ourselves, but Lord, what that does for how we treat others. God, please help us. As much as it has to do with us to be at peace with all men, help us to stop seeking for the the validation that comes from slander, (laughs) that comes from racing to the bottom in how we speak of other people. Lord, help us understand. Uh, we, we have much more in common with Herod in this short set of scriptures than we probably do John the Baptist. Thank you that your gospel allows us to acknowledge that, but not be left despondent and hopeless. Thank you for the joy and peace and life that comes in you and you alone. Lord, May we not just be hearers of your word today, but effectual doers, not deceiving ourselves. And may you be glorified in this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give, or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.